podcast. I'm Cardi Krishnire. Uh, let's move quickly to part two of our conversation about the new book, La Florida, which I consider the best collective read I've uh, seen on colonial Florida and its impact in the origin story of what is now the United States uh, with author Kevin Kokomore. So let's uh, move on to the complicated topics of the natives and slavery. We'll start with the natives. Uh, You write extensively uh, uh, in the book about uh, the Spanish attempts to convert uh, to Catholicism. And and those of us who've visited the reconstructions of the missions uh, in and around Tallahassee uh, understand uh, this concept, but maybe not as thoroughly as we get it from your book. And uh, that seems to be uh, beyond gold and having the, 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 the important stopping point in the way station in St. Augustine. That seems to be... Um, uh, per your writing, the primary motivation for the colony. Yeah, so you know, in the very earliest years, and I and I, and I do make this this um, this differentiation in the book. In the first years of conquest and colonization, Caribbean based. I mean, it really is brutality that is hard to imagine, right? Um, Bartholomew de las Casas writes about it. The Black Legend exists because of it. We might talk about that later, but. But it was just so exploitative and brutal, and it just wipes out these native populations on the islands. And it's just—I mean, it's horrifying. It, It's—it is—it is, it is um, the demographic collapse that takes place on these Caribbean islands, and the slaving that that destroys the, the Bahamas. That—that's not the story forever, right? That uh, friars like Bartolomé de las Casas—they—they—they they, they do penetrate. Uh, their criticisms do do fall on open ears and sooner or later you know there are reforms and the mission does change a little bit it's not necessarily encomienda anymore where you own land and everybody on the land and you just work them to death and that's that's the end it, it the, the church will take more of a you know less of a barber bar- barbaric cannibalistic heathen and more of a soul that needs to be converted and that's where you see this long history of this attempt to missionize is to come in here and and not to not to not to entirely subjugate exploitate until it goes away but to create these mission communities to save souls to create christianized indians right so it's it's really a part two of the of the of the story of catholicism right where part one is basically we're a product of the Reconquista. We see any non-Christian as a threat, and that's an excuse to destroy you, right? The the part two is really about is really about sort of like civilizing uncivilized people, which obviously these are this is all incredibly problematic and loaded. And I make a point to say several times in the book that that you know we are not talking, we are not glorifying Spanish Catholics or friars, or this is not a triumphant story. This is this is still wildly exploitative, right? But those missions reflect that reality and in several in several moments key moments in saint augustine's history like the the early 17th century so we're talking 1600s it really is the spanish catholic missions that save saint augustine you know the king is about ready to give up on saint augustine but by that time missionaries had penetrated these 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 mississippian panhandle mississippian societies like the tamuqua the Wally on the coast or the Appalachian. And they, they have actually 
apparently, you know, as they would argue, converted tens of thousands of natives. They were living in Christian communities under the mission bell, as they would say, right? Uh, San Luis de Talamali, the one in Tallahassee, is obviously an excellent example of how one of those missions, you know, would have looked. It's actually quite impressive. I mean, the church is impressive, right? It's an impressive church. Um, and so that, that really is almost like the jewel in the crown of the Catholic Church. It really is the one North American example that they can point to that say that we're actually saving souls, right? There are, there are, uh, dioceses in, in, you know, in New Spain and New Granada in these areas and in Peru, but these are the ones in Florida. These are where they actually come in contact with these dense, societies they are able to manipulate those societies they're able to set up mission towns and they they are able to work uh they are able to do their their missionizing proselytizing work in similar ways where they've had success in other places like in like in central mexico right so this is this is their this is actually the salvation of la of, of la florida for in several instances right they the, the king's about to shut the thing down. It's about to cut funding, and the missionaries come forward and say, "No, no, no! There's tens of thousands of souls here. You, we can't just leave." So, it, it does have it does have incredible importance in the southeast. Now, in the end, these are vectors for disease. They're vectors for exploitation. They're vectors. They create gigantic targets for the slave trade. These 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 mission towns are just horrible and. Uh, they quicken the pace of the demographic collapse for sure, right? We don't have great numbers for the impact of disease in the Columbian Exchange and demographic collapse in the Southeast where Spaniards aren't. We don't have numbers that tell us what happened in central Alabama or northern Alabama or in central Georgia or up in the mountains. We don't know what happened after DeSoto came through, but we do know what happened in Florida. And when the Spaniards are there, the, the collapse just continues until there's almost no one left. And for the most part, that is because of these missions. That's because of these missions that provide a permanent connection, right, to Europeans, to European foods, European animals that are spreading diseases, and Atlantic trade, right? There's always come and going of ships that are always spreading new organisms. It's really these missions. These missions are the ones that they they demand the most exploitative farming labor to support the missions. I mean, these missions are the agents of native of native demographic collapse. So, it is seen you know, that the irony, the paradox, the irony, I guess, is that you know, these friars point to these Christianized saved souls and say, you know, hey, we're we're doing our we're doing the we're doing the church's work here, and at the same time, you know, this is this is why. This is why there are revolts. This is why there's demographic collapse. This is why there's epidemic disease. This is you can really point to these missions as the places where all of that happened. My goodness, yeah, and that's uh, that that that's really horrifying to think about and and to wrap your head around. So we come to the topic of slavery, which is very complicated, and um, it, it, one of the things that I think has become commonplace to talk about in the 21st century is how La Florida, how Spanish Florida became a haven for runaway slaves and the first Underground Railroad. But we're not going to get to that yet because you have a lot in your book before we get to that about the actual slave trade, uh, Florida's links to the Caribbean and the condition of slavery in uh, in the first what we call the first Spanish period in Florida. So uh, uh, let's discuss that a little bit. Absolutely. 
that's got you know that's actually so so I'm, so I'm up here in South Carolina by the way and uh, I am from Florida originally and and you know if you are a Floridian then every Floridian has known basically since the day that they were born that Juan Ponce de Leon laid eyes on Florida looking for the fountain of youth and and you know the, the more you read into that if you pick up anything of, a, of an academic nature you know that that's pr- that's basically completely. That's nonsense. That's erroneous. <laughs> he never wrote about it. No one else wrote about it. It's it's uh, some myth, right? And you know, you wonder why that myth endures. And then when I, I teach in South Carolina, there are two moments. There are two moments. Juan Ponce de Leon is a part of two moments. When when the East Coast of what is now the United States of America is is more or less quote unquote. I'm using air quotes. Discovered, right? Because. It's only discovered from the perspective of the Spaniards. The first moment, 1513, originates in Puerto Rico. The second moment, which is, you know, 1520s, originates in Puerto Plata, which is on the north coast of what is now the Dominican Republic, what they what they refer to as Hispaniola back, back in the you know 16th century. And if you look at a map, um, it's quite clear that and, and if you read the accounts of Juan Ponce Leon, if you read the accounts of the Spaniards that were working under Lucas Vasquez de Ayon. It's uh, the reason why these men came to t- came to Florida. They, you can take a, a like a ruler and you can draw a line from Puerto Rico directly through the Bahamas and you end up on the east coast of Florida. You take a ruler and, d- and draw it directly from the north coast of the Dominican Republic through the Bahamas and you hit right in South Carolina. And we know from their from their you know we, we we know this with absolute accuracy is that Florida and the East Coast was supposed to be another island, another island, another island. It was supposed to be part of what we now refer to as the Bahamas, but we refer to uh, previously as the Lucayos. And there's a reason why these sailors keep going from Bahamian Island to Bahamian Island to Bahamian Island until they run out of islands and they eventually hit Florida. And that's because they are systematically depopulating every one of the Bahamian Islands of its human population. They are slave raiding the Bahamian Islands until there are no human beings left on the Bahamian Islands. Mm-hmm. Right? Peter Martyr writes about this in the 1530s. He said, you know, by the 1530s, there are no natives left in the Bahamian Islands when there were like 50,000. And that's because of all of the depopulation and violence that we talked about in the earliest years of Spanish conquest on islands like the Dominican Republic. I mean, they work those natives until there aren't any left. And instead of reevaluating their colonial universe, what do the Spanish do? They reach out to neighboring islands and snatch up their human populations and bring them back to Hispaniola. And, you know, what we're getting at here is this really simple but also incredibly dark realization that in the end, who discovered the east coast of Florida and who discovered the east coast of South Carolina? Slave raiders, right? And they were looking for humans. And in the case of South Carolina, they actually do capture dozens of natives from the coast of South Carolina right down from where I sit right now on the Waccamaw River in Winyah Bay, which is what Georgetown, South Carolina is, is right there, right? Spaniards were here in the 1520s and they were here looking to kidnap people, right? And so... 
it's it, it gets a little bit sarcastic and tongue in cheek in the book a little bit, but it's like you know, what do you want to learn as a kid? Do you want to learn about a fountain of youth, or and that's why Juan Ponce de Leon wants to be young again, or do you want to know that Juan Ponce de Leon was here looking to destroy the native population of this place because he had effectively destroyed the native population of everywhere that he had come from? Right? That doesn't sound very American. Right, and that's why uh, some of these myths presumably are told. Um, and so we get we go further along uh, where you are in South Carolina, uh, obviously, uh, uh, is founded in 1670, Charlestown, uh, Charleston now. And that has a huge impact on uh, the way the slave uh, slave society evolves. Uh, and and uh, you, you talk about it in your book that um, these the runaway slaves uh, that come to Florida uh, and um and we can get into the Catholicism and all of that related to it, uh, but leading to the foundation of Fort Mose, which is something we've covered a lot of on this podcast, um, that's um, just sort of a, a pragmatic reaction from the Spanish. It's not necessarily that they're idealists in any way, given this this uh, this very uh, troubling and ugly history that you lay out uh, from before that. Well, absolutely. And so, you know, we there's 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 several chapters in the book that, that take a look at the cosmopolitan nature of St. Augustine and how, you know, it's Spaniards have no problem culturally living in very close proximity with those that they consider inferior, whether it's religiously inferior, racially or ethnically inferior or anything like that. So there is a there is an enslaved population in Florida. There is a free African-American population in Florida. There's all this complexity to St. Augustine. And so it's not that Spaniards are some sort of, in St. Augustine, are some sort of uh, crusaders for uh, civil rights. That's absolutely not it. It is a fully functioning chattel slavery society in Florida. And, the, you know, the Castillo de San Marcos was built by African slaves, right? So uh, St. Augustine is a place of slavery, absolutely. But what happens, what is very unique, is that there's all this gray area also in St. Augustine that doesn't preclude free uh black soldiers it's called repoblacion i mean it is a, it is a weapon that spaniards use and like you said this is it is a strategic decision because spain understands if there's a treaty uh, the 1686 treaty i believe that basically has to accept that south carolina can exist um but that doesn't mean that they aren't interested that spaniards aren't interested and basically doing battle with Charleston to keep it from growing as much as they possibly can. And by the 1680s, it is clear that there is a, um, that, that South Carolina is going to be a place of plantation slavery. They haven't really figured out rice yet, but it, there, it is a place of plantations. It is a place of slavery. It is a place of, you know, the market economy and Spaniards see this opportunity by, by welcoming and offering some sort of nominal freedom to these runaway slaves, they have to they have to um, be Catholics. They have to get married. They have to work. You know, it's it's not exactly like welcome to your own thing, but they welcome, and they you know this is even before Mosaic because Mosaic doesn't really happen until the early 18th century, the 1700s, if I'm correct. But before it actually is built, before that, you have these. It is the lure. Like what you are doing is you are undermining the institution of slavery in South Carolina. That's the weapon here is that by offering the sanctuary 
the word will spread. It will spread up the coast. It will spread word of mouth. And, you know, and slaves will run. They will take the chance. They will seek their freedom south. And what you are doing is you are hurting South Carolina by doing that, right? You are, it is, like I said, it's not a, it's not a religious calling. It's not a civil rights calling. You're not, this is not, um, you're not doing this magnanimously if you are the governor of St. Augustine. And in fact, you know, as soon as enough of these runaway slaves show up, you make a point to create their own community outside of St. Augustine, like which is Mosaic, right? So that they don't have to be living in St. Augustine, because that would sort of upset the whole thing that's happening in St. Augustine. But you are more than welcome to use them. You are more than welcome to physically use them as soldiers, right? Which they do. But even, even the idea, Right. Even the idea of freedom being so close, that spreads like wildfire up the coast into South Carolina and and the enslaved population of South Carolina, they are willing to flee. And that is exactly the way that that was supposed to work. Right. This is a this is a weapon that the Spanish are using against the emerging plantation system in South Carolina. Right. You are you are. This is economic. This is economic warfare. Right. And of course, the, the Great Slave Rebellion of 1739 was absolutely caused by the by the reality that Florida was close by. That was the reality. We don't have a tremendous amount of primary source evidence from this. We don't have a lot of primary source evidence at all for 1740. There's about a dozen sources, but uh, several of them say, you know, these these they're not running away. Right. This is this is a. I mean, they, they are, but they're moving slowly, they're moving violently, they're beating drums and waving flags, and what are they saying? They're saying, we're going to St. Augustine, right? They are heading south for a reason. And they're, you know, believe, again, there's not a whole lot of corroborating evidence there, but that makes sense. That makes sense. There were, there were, um, there were plenty of runaways that had successfully made the journey down to St. Augustine before that. There were feared uprisings that uh, South Carolinians were fearing that something like Sono would happen, then Sono does happen, and it seems like it doesn't take a lot to connect the dots, that this was an armed attempt, right, to run, to basically a very armed, very violent attempt to get to St. Augustine. That's exactly what that was. The American origin story and maybe the whole vision of America is different if we view it through St. Augustine instead of uh, wherever we're viewing it through, you know, Plymouth or, or Jamestown or, or uh, Philadelphia, Boston, whatever. Um, you mentioned repeatedly in the book uh, the cosmopolitan nature of St. Augustine, and this has always been one of my historic contentions, is that um, – Again, it's not that the Spanish were egalitarians, as you mentioned uh, earlier, but there is a very different composition uh, ethnically of St. Augustine than uh, there is of any other place in North America at the time. Yes, absolutely. And again, uh, this, uh, a lot of that has to do with the, the Spaniards' own history pre-colonization, right? That you have this history of struggle – uh, that we talked about the conquista and the reconquista and and what all of that does is it is it creates these southern Spanish cities that are remarkably multi-ethnic uh, that you know there are um, it's Mediterranean right so you have these North African influences you have these Spanish Catholic Muslim I mean if you look at the architecture in the south of Spain I mean it's not classic European right it's it's Islamic I mean, it's beautiful yeah right? it's so 
you know, you, you take that across the ocean and you, these are the same, you know, this is, they're trying to, they're trying to create the same thing here. Like Spaniards of wealth and power have absolutely no problem living in extremely close proximity with those that they deem inferior, right? So that is worth repeating again and again and again, is that we are not trying to say that this is some sort of utopian egalitarian society. Spaniards were unbelievably discriminatory, right? They created a whole caste system, the Olympias uh, de Sangre, right? The, the cleanliness of blood to prove, you know, the purity of your Catholic blood. They had, it, it creates this really truly incredible sort of almost irony or paradox is that we have these incredible sources. We have these church documents that go back to the 16th century, I mean, the 1590s, 1580s, that chart all of the births and baptisms and deaths. And that's how we have evidence of the first, uh, you know, African-American births. Or they, go, they go back all the way to the 1590s because we have evidence of these because friars write this down. And all of these are left for us, uh, all the voluminous, uh, voluminous records that the Spaniards leave. But then, you know, the realization is that they only created those records so that people that were in a cast, they wanted to make sure that they stayed there, right? That, that the only way that the system of multi-ethnicity worked was that if everyone knew where they stood. And then if you didn't cross lines, right? And so it's based off, it's based off a very different it is very unique. Puritans did not do that. Virginians did not have this system. It was a very Iberian, it was a very Spanish, a very Hispanic system. But, you know, it is, it is wildly discriminatory, like almost unbelievably so. It is exploitative, right? There are positions that are not open to you unless you can prove that you are of 100% Castilian Spanish blood. Even even the sons and daughters of Castilians that are born in Florida are somehow less than Castilian, right? I mean, <laughs> they, 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 the the original Floridians, right? I, I make a joke in the book that 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 you know there are almost no Floridians that you would say are from Florida because they all come from somewhere else and they're snowbirds and everything. But you know, the the first sort of first generation Ian, right, of European whatever ancestry, they're Floridians, right, because they're born here. And the church and the society doesn't see them as pure Castilian, even though their their mom and their dad were literally born in Spain and they came over. But since they were conceived and born in St. Augustine, they are no longer um, Castilian. They are Floridano. They are Floridian. They are a Creole. And that is that is less. They are somehow less than the sum of their parts, which is which is an excellent example of just how discriminatory the Spaniards are about this kind of stuff, right? It's there's something so barbarically unchristian about the environment that you were born into that it, the, somehow the place that you were born into has somehow robbed you of some of your christian blood that's how seriously they <laughs> take there's all these levels right and they, they have all these different definitions i mean they're all anachronistic and uh problematic and racist to hear it now the terms like mestizo and mulatto these were all legal definitions that meant things Right, you you were doors were open to you that weren't open to an Indio who sat basically at the bottom of this of, of this pyramid, right? And so, it is at the same time an incredibly multi-racial, multi-ethnic society, and it is at the same time an incredibly discriminatory, segregatory society where people had positions that could never be trans. You know, if if you were able to marry up far enough, you theoretically could gain like a mestizo status. But once you were there, that was it. I mean, it didn't matter. This is not a meritocracy. People in those positions are appointed by 
the king and by royal officers. They're not voted in. It is not open to you. You know, there's a serious searing ceiling here. So it is it is important to um, it is important to acknowledge that that even though this is an incredibly multiracial society, in no way, in no way are we saying that that it, that it was a, a that it worked for everybody because it because it definitely didn't. But that being said, it was a surprisingly multiracial society. I mean, in St. Augustine, you would find enslaved people that worked for the crown. I mean, didn't work. They were owned by the crown. They were doing work. They were owned. They were they were literally building the Castillo de San Marcos, right? They are royal slaves. At the same time, you would have a a free man of mixed ancestry who was an officer who worked, you know, in a in the the free pardo companies that lived in Fort Mose, walking the streets of St. Augustine. You had natives who are not enslaved, but they are there more or less against their will, doing repartimiento work, doing labor work, and they're all mingling in this place. And and then there are Spaniards, there are soldiers who are of the lowest social caste in Spain. There isn't any opportunity for them in Florida except with native women. So you have mixed native Spanish families, mixed African American native Spanish families. I mean, it's just the the um, the diversity is is singular. I mean, it's incredible. Final question is about the kind of permanent link between Florida and the Caribbean that you lay out in the book. And it's something uh, actually the British discovered once they assumed control of Florida in 1763 and assumed it would be uh, uh, just like uh, Georgia and the Carolinas. And uh, by the time the American Revolution starts, the British, I think, had come to the conclusion, at least East Florida is more like the Caribbean and is probably more linked to the Caribbean. Uh, You talk extensively about that, those links in the book. So uh, lay that out for us. Yeah, well, um, I don't actually, uh, some of those sections I actually had in the book. Unfortunately, I ended up cutting them out because the book just would have been a thousand pages long. But <laughs> but what, what you have is the, the Spanish come in and they, they have, I mean, the, the, the English come in, the, the British come in and in 1763. They, they have a lot more, um, they have a lot more hope for St. Augustine. There, there are plantations there. Uh, there is a hope for a rice economy. There's a hope for an indigo economy. And up and down the St. John's, there's actually some growth that takes place. It stops because of the stopped because of the revolution. And it becomes this basically a refugee center for everyone fleeing the low country. And that, you know, there, there is there is hope for um, British East Florida. There's really never any hope for British West Florida. That place is a disaster. And everyone hates living there. And if you're a soldier, you only go there because you've done something wrong and you're being punished. And Pensacola is just a nightmare. And um, there's not a whole lot of hope there. But, but yeah, they... You know, they they take over St. Augustine that's still very Spanish. You know, they 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 try growing. I mean, uh, the last name is Fish, I believe. Uh, I, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. The merchant, uh, Jesse Fish. Yeah. There's oranges all over the place. The next thing you know, he's sending oranges up to Charleston. And they're trying to, you know, they're trying to make this place work. And, you know, we'll never know, obviously, if it, if it really had any potential. They see potential there. Uh, it's all it's potential in all the wrong ways. I mean, they, if, if if there was potential, it was for a, a slavery-based economy of rice and indigo. So you know that's obviously um, not the kind of potential that we would call potential. But but you know the, you yeah it it uh, it goes back to Spain and for the second period and the second period is sort of a little bit of a joke because the Spain tries to develop this potential as well 
they tried to develop the same potential that the English had tried to develop. They, they tried to develop rice plant, I mean, rice plantations, and they more or less revoke the, um, the offer of freedom for runaway slaves. Uh, they're getting pushed back for that. And because they want to develop a plantation economy as well. And it doesn't, the Southeast is not the same place that it was back in the day, but I mean, back in the 17th century when they were battling Charleston and, you know, they, they, they more or less lose their grip and it becomes American, but you still see, you still see all of that, right? I mean, the ranches that are in North Florida, uh, you know, you, you can drive through North Florida and I still, some of the most beautiful places I've ever seen are just driving even up 95. I mean, even up 75 around Ocala, those, those beautiful open savannas, um, the savannas around Gainesville, you know, all those, I mean, those were all once cattle ranches. Um, you know, there were orange trees all up and down the St. John's. I mean, uh, uh, William Bartram, just, he, yeah. couldn't, he couldn't write two lines in, in his journal without mentioning orange trees. I mean, it would, it would, it was like there were a plague of orange trees everywhere. There were orange trees and a lot of that is gone, but Florida still has a history of cattle. Florida still has a history of agriculture. Florida still has a history of citrus. Uh, and so in a lot of ways it endures, right? It's not, you, you it, it, there's always this, this counter narrative idea, you know, of Florida and what it could have been. But you, you look at it now and say, you know, would there be cattle in North America without the Spanish? I mean, yeah, obviously, but it wouldn't have looked, it wouldn't look this, the way it does now. Texas wouldn't look the way it does now. Florida wouldn't look the way it does. Would there have been some sort of citrus in the United States without Florida? I mean, well, probably not actually, you know, but, but even though, you know, Florida, even though the Spanish ownership shrank and shrank and shrank and shrank and faded away, the legacy is still there. I, I point to one of my favorite legacies, and I was trained as a Native Americanist, is the identity of Seminoles. I mean, Seminoles would not have existed because Seminoles are Creek Indians who moved down into Florida and just loved everything they saw because what was, you know, what was there around Alachua? All, all sorts of cattle that no one owned, all sorts of horses that no one owned, the white-tailed deer were everywhere because no one had been hunting them. They came down as groups of creeks and they just never went back, right? And so the Seminoles owe, they don't owe, but the Seminoles can, can chart their ethnogenesis as a people to Florida. And, you know, there's, there's nothing more Florida than all of these things. And so in a lot of ways, La Florida is a book about the larger Southeast. It absolutely is. But if there is, if there are links to the present day, to culture and identity that are the strongest, they are the links that remain within the peninsula of Florida that you can look to today that would have said, that, that say, you know, St. Augustine still exists. And if you walk downtown St. Augustine, you can still see the central plaza. You can still see the tight European style streets and the gardens that would have existed 400 years ago. And you can still see the orange trees. And you can still see, you know, you can still see the smoke mullet. You can still see the cattle. You can still see Seminoles, right? Well, thank you for all your time uh, on this uh, subject, on this book. And in fact, we're probably going to call on you again uh, to join us on this podcast to talk about uh, subjects related to colonial Florida and Native Americans uh, and the origin story of the United States. Once again, the book is La Florida. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. you, you can walk into your Barnes & Noble in, in uh, Tallahassee or in Fort Lauderdale or wherever you are in the state, Tampa. Um, it's Barnes & Noble. Uh, uh, 
in Orlando, etc., and pick up the book. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it from independent booksellers. Uh, and uh, we urge you to get a copy of it. And in fact, we'll, we'll put all the links up on the Florida Squeeze website and here at the Florida History Podcast. Thank you once again for listening. We'll be back next week. Uh, Ryan Ray is going to join us next week. We're going to talk a little bit about the West Florida versus East Florida divide, um, which we talked about in this series, these two podcasts, a little bit, and how that divide um, shaped a lot of modern Florida and and, and um, the dif- different development stories between West Florida, uh, everything west of the Apalachicola River versus the peninsula. Uh, and the Big Bend region, if you want to throw the Big Bend region in with the peninsula. So uh, that's next week on the Florida History Podcast.